0: This show is part of the Stuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello, hello, hello and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. I'm Andrew Carroll. And this episode we're talking all about Ramona. <laughs> na, na, na. Um, it's Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yeah, the internet's
0: girlfriend for a brief period of four to five years let's say (laughs) Andrew one down our history Mary Elizabeth Winstead was born in Rocky Mount, North Carolina in 1984 forced to quit ballet due to being too tall Winstead began pursuing acting Uh, initially acting in TV her very first role was as a guest on Touched by an Angel She had a regular role between 1999 and 2001 in the soap opera Passions, but it was a role in Final Destination 3 as Wendy Christensen that established her in film and as a Scream Queen. From there, she appeared in the 2006 remake of Black Christmas, the 2011 remake of The Thing, 2012's Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and 2016's 10 Cloverfield Lane. Outside of horror, Winstead established herself as a prolific and reliable presence in the likes of Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, Edgar Wright's cult favourites Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Len Wiseman's Live Free or Die Hard and The Spectacular Now. Her roles in the indie dramas Smashed, False, directed by her then-husband Riley Stearns, and The Daniels' Swiss Army Man earned her critical acclaim. In recent years, Winstead has pursued roles in a variety of action films such as Ang Lee's ambitiously experimental, if flawed, Gemini Man, the superhero in film Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, and the brutal Netflix Yakuza Brawlfest, Kate. She continues acting in television with recent roles including an episode of Love, Death and Robots and the third season of Fargo where she met her current husband, actor Ewan McGregor. Speaking of Star Wars, she will appear in the Mandalorian spin-off series Ahsoka this year on Disney+. .Plus, Winston is also a singer and formed the band Got a Girl with artist Dan the Automator in 2013. They released the album I Love You But I Must Drive Off This Cliff Now in
1: 2014. Great name. Yeah. Um- yeah, I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's got the type of career I love to cover on the show, which mm. where she's a real icon in like cult genre movies. Mm. But she also has been in blockbusters, indie flicks, prestige TV shows. Has worked with a lot of huge directors. She's done it all, man. I know, and I think she's a really striking screen presence. Um, she's got those big eyes that make her feel very expressive and mm. open on screen. And on top of that, she's got a like slightly kind of lower voice that makes her seem a bit tougher than a lot of her mm. contemporaries. Yeah. Um, she's also, you know, a great physical actress. When it comes to action sequences, evident in things like Birds of Prey or Gemini Man, or you know, the End of Ten Cloverfield Lane. I haven't seen Kate, but um, you did for this. I imagine it's the same there too.
0: A lot of fun, yeah,
1: and uh, better than people give it credit for. Yeah, because I, I remember the reviews came out for that, and I was a bit like, oh, I, w- I wanted more for her, but then he's yeah, pretty really good. Yeah, um, I would say it feels a bit weird covering her on I Know That Face. Like, i um, you know, I know the meaning of the term character actor is not always precise, but um, I tend to think of character actors as performers who have a quality or a presence about them that makes them maybe less likely to be cast in lead parts in blockbusters. Just say ugly or bald, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that. Um, <laughs> but also makes them kind of incredible for, you know, specific projects or to start in like smaller or more, you know, ventures indie or Hardhouse, you know, movies um, or to leave a big impression in a supporting role in a big movie. Yeah, I think Winstead, you know, is more naturally a star than a character actor. I feel like she really has that spark that makes, that gets audiences to instantly like her and want to follow her. That said, I think she's in that sort of Carl Urban zone where a lot Mm. of the big movies that she starred in outside of 10 Cloverfield Lane or had a big part in just didn't do the business financially that was expected of them. And it's a shame because I always think she's good in them.
0: She needs that one kind of, she needs two things. She needs one, like, really good action role, which Kate was, but didn't do well. And she needs that one really good horror role to really like put her up put her up there as like, you know, it's an original property. It's not like a threequel. It's yes. not a remake. It's not something crap like Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. It's something to, just to like, really like set the bar for for her for life, you know? Yeah, so exactly. when People think Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Well, yeah, they think Ramona Flowers, great. That's an iconic role. Also in a film that didn't do well. Yeah. Um, um, but the, she needs like the Ripley role, you know?
1: And I think like she did get a lot of roles based off of 10 Cloverfield Lane after that mm. but it does maybe feel a little bit like half of the sort of the blank check that was given from that movie was like to Dan Trachtenberg to make Prey yeah, and like yeah. the Cloverfield franchise as a whole not just her mm. you know yeah um, I do think like, though like she's in a lot of good movies though yeah, like yeah, Scott yeah, versus vs. the World is one yeah, of the most yeah. uh, one of the best movies of the last decade and like Birds of Prey is one of the best superhero movies of recent years I think and I think they both deserve better and so yeah, I just think a could be considered a character actor more because a lot of her star plays weren't big successes which has maybe led her to pursuing more like smaller indie projects. Although there is a quote in her IMDb which cites her as saying she doesn't just want to be a blockbuster star and she says um, I don't necessarily want to sign on to seven films in a role that I'm not really passionate about because I do really want to do films like Smashed with the, her critically acclaimed 2012 movie where she plays an alcoholic trying to get sober but unfortunately you don't get paid to do films like this you get enough to go to a nice dinner that's basically the money you get paid so you do have to think about your career and making a living and how you're going to do that that's kind of what i want to focus on is always working with people at least with an independent point of view even if it's not an independent film so i, yeah. I think that's interesting makes sense andrew yeah. um one of your thoughts on winston like i said
0: uh just wish he had that you know like that ripley role or that the uh, laurie strode kind of role something to really just put her out there her, she needs her own like alien or her own atomic blonde something that's like not part of a franchise or What I'd love to see her in, in terms of that Ripley role, because I really think she's in that lineage of, like, Sigourney Weaver, New Mirror Pass, Catherine Waterstone. I'd love to see her in in an alien film, whether it be at a prequel or, like, in the kind of the main line. Like, like, that new Fede Alvarez Alvarez movie, alien movie that starts shooting in, like, two days. um, There's no one I know in it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't recognize any of the names really. I'm sure I recognize the faces, maybe. But like, should have
1: been watching industry, and would have recognized. Oh, fuck off!
0: (laughs) Who watches TV anymore? Um, But I'd love to see her in that, maybe, or like Ridley Scott's uh, the one he's making. God knows when, in like three years.
1: Yeah. Also, um, the person who made Fargo is doing an Alien TV show, and she she's worked on before. Great,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, But with that said, you know, uh, yeah, I'd love to see her in an Alien movie. But also, I think she really needs that, like. Something that's like really well written, but ha- is still riding on the coattails of like that John Wick action success, or the the something that's not a remake or a sequel to a to a good horror a, a great horror movie is what she needs sure. is what she is what I want to see her in, not necessarily what she needs.
1: Mm-hmm. We start talking about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Sure, yeah.
0: Do you have the plot. I do. Scott Pilgrim, played by Michael Sarah, is a twenty-two-year-old loser who cuts his own hair and is also the bass player for the indie garage band Sex Bobomb. He is dating 17-year-old high schooler Knives Chow, played by Ellen Wong. Ugh. That's ugh to a 17-year-old high schooler, not Ellen Wong. Much to the disapproval of everyone around him. At a party, he meets his literal dream girl Ramona Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and starts dating her too, unaware that he will have to defeat her seven evil exes in order to win her heart.
1: So, what was all that all about? Um, I guess...
0: If we're going to date, you
1: may have to defeat my seven evil exes. You have seven evil ex-boyfriends? Seven evil exes, yes. And I have to fight? Defeat. Defeat your seven evil exes if we're going to continue to date? Pretty much. So what you're saying
0: right now is we are dating?
1: Uh, I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure.
0: Cool. (laughs)
1: Do you like this movie?
0: I really do. It's so good. I I hadn't (laughs) seen it in like maybe 10 years. Um, uh, And then I watched it again and I was like, this is fucking amazing. (laughs) This is so good. Yeah. Um, Though not the theme of every Edgar Wright film, it does share like thematic DNA with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and that it's about a slacker learning through the incredible power of violence, how to do right by himself and those he loves. And I remember there being a lot of posts about this film on Tumblr back in like 2012, uh back in that website's kind of heyday for, for my generation anyway. And a lot of those posts were about how good the film was, and you know, all the gifs and uh uh screenshots and stuff like that. You know, was, Is Scott there? You know what? He just left. the <sharp inhale> <sharp inhale> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And but there was a lot of other uh posts that were trying to mount some kind of high horse. Some uh, regarding the films like biphobia, which, you know, fair enough, that's a little weird bit in the film, and how it's about shitty people ultimately learning from and not being permanently punished for their mistakes. And despite all the films, anime action, Jackie Chan and video game influences, that's what real life is like. Most mistakes are forgiven in real life, and although the power of self-respect won't grant you a flaming katana out of your chest, it will help you accept your flaws and communicate better with the people you love and the people you hate. Um... Uh, but it is like genius casting Winstead as this blue-haired or pink-haired or green-haired rollerblading dream girl who can project the kind of effortless cool and quiet melancholy we associate with these kinds of characters, and sort of just set the set the bar for them. And um, and often these kind of car- these kinds of characters can be like twee or quirky to a saccharine degree. But I don't think Flowers is. I think while her style and, and interests aren't performative her attitude to life is and it's clear that she's sick of running from the likes of action star lucas lee played by chris evans <laughs> superpowered vegan bake- bassist todd ingram by played by brandon ruth superman himself yeah. and gideon g-man graves the guy jason sportsman and who wouldn't be fed up if a guy called matthew patel uh, played by satya baba uh, showed up dressed as a pirate and struck an anime pose you'd be sick yeah yeah, so. yeah. um and I think what Wright, Edgar Wright said about her um, was uh, he is, she has a very sunny disposition as a person so it was interesting to get to play a version of herself that was broken inside and she's great in the film because she causes a lot of chaos but remains like supernaturally grounded. Hmm. Like you know Matthew Patel shows up and he strikes his pose and he's like pirates are in this year <laughs> and she turns to like Anna Kendrick and everyone and she's like Anyone need another drink? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Anna Kendrick's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really Apparently, cool.
0: those reactions were real because she didn't really know what was going on, and all of a sudden, Michael, Sarah, and Matthew Patel are flying around on wires. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. No. Yeah, I adored this too. Um, Wallace again. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. We'll 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 run through those at <laughs> the, the gags. End, the yeah. Yeah, I yeah, love this movie. Um... I'm not a big rewatcher of movies generally but I've seen this like three or four times Mm. Um, it's just such a fun easy hang I Um, really want to watch it again it's only been like three weeks it's just dense with funny jokes recurring gags incredible line readings almost on that airplane level where on your fourth viewing you'll just notice something hilarious you've Mm. never really caught before it's also the filmmaking too like the way the movie draws inspiration from like video games comic books musicals sitcoms other popular culture and just even into like the way scenes are designed or how they transition from one to another or how the characters are styled or how the action sequences play out it's just so giddy and dizzying and rich and you're constantly just discovering new details on a rewatch. But I do think that yeah, like you said, like it's a it's a very heightened and fantastical story and is told in this kind of hyper kinetic, bombastic way, but it still manages to touch on something true about being kind of lost in your twenties mm, and falling in love so, yeah. and having your heart broken and growing as a person and um realizing just, your gay roommate doesn't want you around anymore because you're crapping <laughs> yeah. the style. Kieran Culkin before Incredible. the succession kind of
0: yeah. and he gets most of the good lines yeah, as well yeah, yeah. watch out it's that one guy <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, not a race guys <laughs> um, hey Scott fight whatever <laughs> um, it's just and I think the movie's like near perfect mix of like just direction writing performance special effects cinematography like there's something very alchemic about it um I was I watched this every couple of years and every time I sit down to watch it when it's not as fresh in my mind I wonder if the Ramona Flowers character will feel like a real person because like mm. so much of the movie is about her being the object of affection for Scott and for her 70 exes. and while well, I don't think the character is given like a huge amount of interiority in the screenplay The little bits we do get and just Winston's incredibly lived in performance do so much to fill out the character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what's really impressive to me about Winston in the movie is that there's like hardly any lines her character Ramona has that aren't delivered in a sort of aloof over it tone. Yeah. Yeah. And yet there's so much emotion in Winston's kind of wide eyes and open facial expressions, which does so much to sell to the viewer that her distant act is this shield Mm. to protect her from maybe opening up to the extent where she could get hurt or heartbroken. And that's even way before it's suggested. Although, never really stated explicitly that there may be some sort of tragedy in her past Mm, Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also think it's amazing that like despite Winston playing such a gloomy character that by her nature is one note you know like aloof distant mysterious she sounds why people would be attracted to her outside of her obvious good looks I Mm, think yeah, because the character is funny and charming in this very dry way which is obviously aided heavily by you know Winston's coming timing along with Edgar Wright's sharp speedy direction Like when the lead singer in Scott's band, Stephen Stills, who uh, really popped for me on this rewatch, Mm. everything he says, (laughs) Paper Mark Webber, we have to play now, loud, (laughs) but uh, level with me. Did we suck? Ramona, I don't know. Did you? And then walks away (laughs) and he's like, she has to go. She knows we suck. (laughs) Or, you know, when she dyes her hair blue after having it be pink and Scott's like, you know your hair? And she's like, I know of it. <laughs> 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 or, you know, she sees the jealous Knives Chow staring at her in the bathroom intensely after Knives has like styled her hair exactly like mm. Ramona. Ramona says, hey, and then she just walks away muttering to herself, what the hell? <laughs> 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 like, this, like she, the little bits she does get yeah, are really yeah. funny. And, I feel like if people have a problem with the movie, it's they wonder if Ramona, who is you know so cool and fascinating, would ever be seriously interested in someone like Scott, this sort of nebbishly slacker who... Mm. Um, Cuts his own hair. Yeah, 22 in the film, begins with him in this weird relationship with a 17-year-old, yeah. um, who's played by terrific Alan Wong. She's really funny in the movie. Yeah, she's really good. Um, everyone's great in this, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I do think, like... It is clear that like Scott doesn't see the relationship with Knives as a romantic or a sexual thing. I think he's more looking for an ego boost, you know, someone to be yeah, interested yeah, in him yeah. after he was broken up yeah. with by the rock star at MV Adams <laughs> by <Bye-bye> Free <lesson. laughs> Um But Knives thinks that they're in a romantic relationship and he does later on. Mm, and yeah. I think there's two ways you can read Ramona being interested in Scott and both are valid. One, Ramona is actively looking to break a pattern and date someone totally different, two or seven axes who are all either more like Ramona grown up like disaffected and angry or were these awfully egomaniacs mm, yeah. and I think for the most part the cheery and sometimes sweet but also intensely self-critical Scott is different yeah. to them in those yeah. respects but Scott isn't very nice to Knives or to Kim uh, play by Alison Pill the, the drummer in the band yeah. we are sex <laughs> <laughs> Um because he, he went out with her before leaving her to date Envy and um, he's also very judgy of Ramona's past choices in a way which makes him seem like kind of a ass. dick yeah, yeah so it could be too that by dating Scott Ramona is continuing her pattern of mm, going out with jerks yeah. and you know when Scott says that awful line to Ramona like uh, is there anyone in this party you haven't gotten with and she responds like I thought you'd be more understanding you're just another evil ex waiting to happen that's kind of telling yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, yeah. and um, I think the movie is ultimately less about whether or not you know Scott and Ramona get together or more about the journey of Scott from being someone who could be an evil ex to being actually like a decent person yeah, yeah. and um, it's very telling that when you know spoilers when he fights Gideon final and ultimate evil axe played by Jason Schwartzman. he gets the power of love sword and dies mm. but it's only when he gets the power of self-respect sword that he has a better go of it yeah that's what film critics call symbolism uh, is it really yeah. Okay, yeah. there oh. we go it's the first time I'm learning
0: that <laughs> three years three years of film school wasted any any other good bits <laughs> that's actually
1: hilarious <laughs> I was going to do it earlier when you said his name yeah sorry I um, heard you but I talking over you yeah yeah um, what can I say I'd be nothing without my stuff, guys. <laughs> Getting blazed in my winnie. <laughs> Sometimes I <laughs> yeah. let him do
0: wide shots. Yeah, that's really funny.
1: Yeah. I like when um, Steven still wants Scott to like play in the band to support Envy Adam's band. Mm. And he's like, come on, Scott, a gig is a gig is a gig is a gig. And then later on, he's commits and he's like, come on, for the band, for the band, for the band, for the band. Chicken isn't vegan? <laughs> bread makes you fat. What? <laughs> Bread makes you fat? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's really... The, the way his voice just ratchets up three <laughs> octaves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we move on to the thing. Yes, yes, mm. let's do it. Do you watch this too? I did. The camera, yeah, yeah. The yeah, I do. Antarctica, 1982. American paleontologist Kate Lloyd, played by Win- Winstead, is recruited by the arrogant Danish sander Halvorsen, played by Ulrich Thompson, after an enormous spaceship and its sole occupant are found embedded in the ice. After being removed from the ice, the creature awakens and begins killing and mimicking the crew of the Norwegian Thule Research Station. With no idea who to trust, Kate, the researchers, and American helicopter pilot Sam Carter, played by Jule Edgerton, must stop the creature before it escapes, or die trying. This thing can, and probably has, replicated a person. Who? Okay. okay, Kate, Kate, okay, Kate. Okay. 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 This is not the time to be yelling fire. Let's stop. Gather our thoughts. Discuss this in private. We don't need any private meetings, Doctor.
1: What the fucking information? There's more.
0: What are those? I think they're fillings from someone's teeth. I found them by a puddle of blood in the shower.
1: A puddle of blood?
0: It can clone cells, but not inorganic material. It couldn't copy these, so it spit them out. we wasted too much time already lost listen when I went back to check it someone had cleaned up the blood someone had wiped it away all Right. so whatever it is it is still here so well crafted but I think but ultimately unnecessary <laughs> prequel to one of the best films of all time
1: yeah I was th- thought I would go into it with that opinion it was actually less good I thought than even that Really? I kind of noticed the scenes. Stephen Threezio strikes again. I said, let's say Stephen two and a half Zio. Was it two and a half Zio? I I think I might have put it as three yeah, originally and then yeah. I was feeling like I've got to have some consistency here. Two point five.
0: Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Um I I think by twenty twelve John Carpenter's the thing, uh made in nineteen eighty two, starring Kurt Russell. Great a great maybe the benchmark for kind of practical effects. Um, in horror at least uh, that movie was kind of well and truly rehabilitated and kind of soaked in the golden haze of nostalgia so any attempt to kind of enter the universe of that film already had a steep hill to climb sure. and I think the implication of what happened at the Norwegian base camp is was always going to be far more interesting than any explanation that could possibly provide, be provided um, and I think unlike the prequels to Alien this film doesn't have the kind of visionary genius behind it to get out of its pre- predecessor's shadow Although I will say, one thing that the film gave me that I didn't know I needed is that it turns Lars, played by Jürgen Langell, uh, from he's the guy at the start of the first film in the helicopter, who's yes. shoot, shooting yeah, at shooting the dog, the dog yeah. Yeah. Uh, he turns him from a sort of bubbling fool in the first film who drops a grenade and blows himself in the <laughs> helicopter up, um, into a very capable, strong-willed fighter whose actions you believe in the original film because he's probably so unhinged and sleep-deprived by the 2011 film's end. Um, so... I think this film has plenty of charm and some, u- u- some unique ideas of its own, but it ultimately lacks its own personality, and its best bits are pulled from other better films. And even the character Kate is very close to Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver from the Alien films.
1: Yeah, um, I was excited to rewatch this because I remember seeing it. I'm thinking it was like okay, like obviously mm. huge. Shadow to follow, you know, living yeah, in the shadow yeah. of this like massive movie, and I, you know, I me, mean, I love a snowy setting. Mm, you know? I know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I don't think the movie's terrible. Like, I, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead's performance is very strong. Um, I like that, you know, in her first scene, her character Kate is doing some work on um, this giant animal cadaver when she's approached by her friend Adam, and uh, he's played by Eric Christian Olsen, and his boss, Eric Christian her, Olsen, Rick Thompson yeah. <laughs> from Community, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, Vaughn from Community. And um, I really like how Winstead immediately displays in that introductory scene that Kate is both quite perceptive and brave um, because like she thinks she's just meeting Adam and the, but then Sandra surprises her and as Sandra introduces himself you can see her looking over to Adam and being like, what's this? Mm-hmm. And um, Sandra then asks her a little pompously like, do you know who I am? And i she, hate that guy yeah and i she, hate him so much she does sort of like a mini eye roll and is like i do <laughs> <And> <laughs> like already she spots like this guy's annoying yeah yeah um and then but you know span sander explains that a colleague of his found a structure and a specimen in Antarctica, and he says something like um i can't give you any more details except it's a remarkable find and we need a paleontologist and she's like i guess i don't have any time to think about this and he says i need an answer right now and she says well takes the longest pause and then goes I'm in (laughs) and yeah it's a pretty good introduction but I think also gives a heads up to viewers that the characters in this movie be very different in temperament to those in the 80s movie in Kurt Russell's first scene in the original his hero loses a chest to a computer and pours whiskey on it in anger (laughs) Um, Cheating bitch but um, it's interesting the 80s movie had no female characters this is two although Vincent's Kate is the only one given really any much much focus Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think, to the filmmaker's credit, they they wove that into the fabric of the movie and Kate's development as a character. I think, you know, when Kate arrives in Antarctica, it's pretty much all men. Also, it's the early 80s. And you get a sense through writing and Winslet's performance that because of that early on, Kate's reluctant to sort of draw attention to herself or rock the boat too much, Mm, Yeah, Um, particularly after Sander has the genius idea to uh, stab the alien creature with a drill, despite Mm. not knowing anything about it or its physiology. And you know, as he explains his plans to do so, Kate rightfully says, um, "Oh, I don't think it's a good idea." Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Sorry. A Sorry. very, a very astute observation. Yeah. yeah. And but Sandra pulls her aside later and is like, "In the future, don't contradict me in front of those people again." And she goes, "I just thought." And he cuts her off and says, "You're not here to think. You're here to get the thing safely out of the ice." And but then after that, like Sandra's plan backfires mm. and people are being picked off one by one and replaced by Amy copies. And the, in that kind of part of the movie, there are like two or three scenes where we see Winston's Kate silently in the background kind of looking on in horror and worry as the men sort of run around like headless chickens mm. but once she discovers the supposedly dead alien cells are actually alive and that they can replay other cells and you know she's kind of forced to like step up and lay out her theory which we know to be true because mm. we've seen the 80s movie yeah. that the alien or thing is you know killing people it's replicating just them that none of
0: these characters had yeah, it's,
1: yeah. Uh, it would have been just yeah save them yeah. all yeah. the considering bother considering it was made the same year as the incident <laughs> yeah I mean. yeah um yeah, but the, the game's killing people, replicating them, hiding them in plain sight and spreading. And I think Winza delivers that scene with a lot of portent, but she's not really taken seriously mm. the character Kate and, you know, Adam undermines her and she's shouting like, you have to listen to me. But I think... After everything Kate says is proven to be true, most of the crew do start to see her as the voice of reason leading to the best scene of the movie where, you know, Kate has realised at that point that the thing can't replicate inorganic material. So the dudes with the flamethrowers at Kate's behest line everyone up against the wall and Kate's checking their mouths for tooth fillings in this lengthy sequence that I think is the only really scene in the movie that captures the paranoia of the 80s original. Probably because... The scene with the fillings is so close to the, like the blood test scene. Yeah. And it's nice to they movie. kind of
0: remixed it instead of being like, oh, we should just do the blood thing again.
1: And a more lo-fi, kind of yeah, because they yeah. obviously wouldn't be as have the resources yeah. that the American people would, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that seems really gripping. And um I, I think Winston does convey to viewers that change in Kate, you know, her being pushed out of necessity to take charge of the situation and give out orders to the men mm-hmm. and people like Sander, who were basically her boss. I do think that once everything does kick off though the movie sort of abandons any ideas or specificity it might have had and becomes a very standard creature flick and that's not the worst thing in the world. Mm, yeah, I actually like some of the thing design variations in this like the bit in the helicopter is scary looking yeah. um, there's the another part where one character gets assimilated through the face yes. and it's horrifyingly gruesome yeah. to, to its credit but considering how tactile the effects are in the 80s movie the overabundance of CGI here is quite a bummer
0: yeah yeah it's um, really and it really yeah, it's it hasn't aged well at all it doesn't feel yeah.
1: real or visceral no and just kind of takes you out of the movie
0: yeah I think there's a good bit that, well, I would say it's good but the second I said good bit it, I, I realised there's just a shot in Aliens uh, that's the same where she's on the ship and she's like the camera's on Winstead and she's staring straight ahead and then you see like the shadow move behind her And it's like, that's definitely out of one of the Alien movies, at the very least. And it's just this formless kind of CGI blob that's moving. And you're like, why bother? You know, why bother? And it's especially annoying. Did you? Why spend millions of
1: dollars on this? Did you read about the production of this movie?
0: Yeah, it is really annoying because they did use practical effects and then just digitized over them all, basically.
1: Yeah, I wrote it in. Um, It's been reported that the creature effects were filmed primarily with cable-operated animatronic robots, that CGI was only planned to be added as elements to the animatronics Mm. but reportedly audience responses from initial test screens led to the studio ordering the replacement of most animatronic scenes with little CGI models I don't get that at all maybe they were just lit the wrong way maybe I don't know but um, I also think the ending of this movie is a real dud Um, according to online an original shot ending was going to explain how the alien ship crash landed in the first place reportedly this would have confirmed that the thing started replicating other alien species on the spaceship in a similar way to what it did with the antarctica base Mm. and the 80s movie the John Carpenter movie uh, causing the ship to crash out on Earth. So when Kate entered the ship she would have seen a dead alien pilot hanging. Apparently the studio thought Kate discovering the origin of the thing was too complicated and missed the climax and so the filmmakers replaced the dead alien pilot hanging with that awful Tetris animation (laughs) (laughs) which serves literally no purpose other than just covering up something that was removed from the movie. And it's almost worse because Mary Elizabeth Winstead is such a good actress because throughout the movie a lot of other actors see the thing or something disturbing and they scream and panic. But Winstead's Kate tends to do that, you know, the standstill and fright thing and just lets her wide eyes convey the horror of what's happening. Yeah, And that also her character's thinking of a way to escape and survive. And there's a little bit of Sigourney Weaver in Alien about it, who, you know, yeah. we've talked about. She's has a similarity to, in terms of her performances, and Winstead herself has cited Ripley as being an inspiration for her performance. And it's very effective. But Winstead's doing similarly strong work in that scene with the Tetris Cube but there's a disconnect because she's acting like she's seeing something very important and pivotal to the movie, but it's not at all. It yeah, literally yeah, means yeah, nothing. Yeah, um, So you're just kind of confused.
0: Yeah, confused and disappointed. That's the two emotions I'd most associate with this film.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I even think that I sort of want to know what happens to Kate definitively. I don't really like this she drove to the Russian station yeah, yeah or yeah. she it's like the, the like the ending of the mist like have like a stance or whatever because yeah, yeah, like yeah. the ambiguous ending of the John Carpenter thing feels very rooted to the themes of that movie yeah. but this movie doesn't really have an ideology so mm, the fact that it true. just sort yeah. of ends with we don't know what happened I'm a bit like oh, really you don't yeah <laughs>
0: yeah yeah, yeah. not laziness per se more confusion again yeah, yeah a little bit yeah.
1: I do like the end credits though They are cool. They are really cool. Well done. And parts of it are good. And it is snowy. So Mm. it's got that going for it. I don't think, I was trying to rank all the John Carpenter remakes, which is its own sort of subcategory of movies, because there's the, um, I would the Fog, Fog, Dead Last, terrible movie. Fair enough. I would put The Thing then. Mm. I think I'd go Rob Zombie's Halloween, because I know it's like, it has a mixed reception, but it has an ideology. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't feel compromised. Really like the middle of that movie. Yeah, I do do too. Um, It goes hard. Mm. And then I think Assault Precinct 13 is actually really good.
0: Okay, fair enough. From
1: the director of Plane. Um, As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hi, I'm Gerold Farrelly. And I'm Niamh Kavanagh. And we have been friends for a very long time. And we regularly solve each other's problems. And now we'd like to solve yours in our podcast, Agony Rants. It's a weekly show where we offer
0: you unwavering support.
1: It's true. And it's the place to go if you need a place to vent or to get thoughtful advice.
0: It's a serious lawsuit waiting to happen.
1: Now, Gerold, there isn't a problem that can't be helped by having a comedian and a Eurovision winner dissected before your very ears. Agony Rants is 40 minutes with two friends who just want to listen to you. Me wants to listen. I dip in and out. Agony Rance has a new episode every Monday and you'll find us wherever you do your listening. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff podcast network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers to sign up to headstock plus it's just five euro plus fat per month when you sign up no matter what show or shows you are supporting you still get access to everything all the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network a lot of great podcasts plus by doing so you'll be supporting i know the face to bring you more top material for all the details and to sign up visit headstuff podcasts.com and now back to the show can i talk about faults? go for it yeah this is a 2014 thriller um with what i describe as kind of a thick vein of black comedy running through it Um, The movie centres on Ansel Roth, uh, played by Leland, Leland Orser an expert in cults that has fallen on hard times after a very public controversy which we learn more about as the movie goes on. Um, he's basically at the end of his rope. Um, the movie begins with him being kicked out of a restaurant after trying to pay for his food with an already expired coupon. <laughs> then he's attacked while doing a public reading from his new book which is a flop. Um, and because the book was a flop he owes thousands to his manager played by John Grease who people may know as Greg in The White Lotus. Um, the manager um, sends a man played by Lance Reddick to threaten him. Um, however, at his lowest point Ansel's approached by a couple who are worried about their daughter Claire, played by Winstead who is joined mysterious cult named False Um, seeing a way to pay off his debts Ansel proposes to Claire's parents a plan to kidnap Claire and to then keep her trapped in a motel room so that he can deprogram her and you know get her out from under the cult spell which as you can imagine is a very um, risky (laughs) uh, proposition Uh, but the parents agree to it so Claire is abducted and brought to the Houghton motel room where most of the movie is set as Ansel tries various methods to get her to leave the cult and so the kind of juice of the movie is like can Ansel who's a bit rusty and is already under so much pressure pull this off there's also the mystery of what faults is. You know, Claire is quite reticent to talk about the cult and her role in it. And when she does, she makes it sound like its members actually have supernatural powers. Um, Claire's parents begin acting strangely when they're eventually allowed to see her again as part of the deprogramming process. So throughout the movie, you're never quite on solid ground in terms of like what's actually happening, who's in control. Hmm. Why are you doing this? My name is
0: Ansel Roth. I specialize in helping people who are lost and who might be under the control of others. I'm not lost. I found myself, and I choose to live my life the way I live because God wills it. I am here because I want to learn. I want you to tell me about yourself. Where are my about... parents? That is not important. This is just you and me. What's going on inside your head right now?
1: I'm thinking about how I want to rip your tongue out of your throat so you'll shut up.
0: And you're close enough that I could reach out and strangle you with my bare hands and that I'd like to. I'm just waiting for a sign from God. That is understandable. Just so you know, I'm probably going to move back a little right now.
1: This is the debut movie from Riot director Rye Stearns, who was married to Winstead when it was made. They've since separated. Um, He's one of my favorite up-and-coming filmmakers. He's made three movies, Faults, The Art of Self-Defense, the satire bit, Toxic Masculinity with Jesse Eisenberg and Alessandro Nivola, and Duel. Uh, A sci-fi movie with Karen Gillan about a person who must fight a clone of herself to the death. Um, I describe his vibe as akin to a sort of scrappier Yorgos Lanthimos. I think both of them have this like absurdist streak and make movies about how weird humans are. Mm. And their movies have a similar kind of off-kilter vibe. But I think Stern's films are made cheaper. They use less big actors, are shorter. And they're also, I think, less oblique than Lanthimos' work. I think with a Lanthimos movie, you can watch it and you're sort of left to parse meaning out of what was presented to you. Sturge's films are a bit more direct in what they're trying to say yeah. of the three movies I believe False is the best just got the strongest story and the best performances it's that thing we've talked about on, before on the show with the likes of like the standoff at Sparrow Creek or Dog Soldiers or I think Reservoir Dogs is the gold standard of this where it just feels like a debut filmmaker has realised their budgetary limitations and then has crafted this story that turns those disadvantages into a benefit yeah. you know it works for the claustrophobic paranoid air of this movie that it mostly takes place in one room mm. on top of that as bonus bo-
0: points if you have a James Badge Dale in there
1: <laughs> wish yeah. who could he have been in part <laughs> two coming soon yeah, yeah. no I'm kidding um and I think, like, as opposed to casting big stars, he's hiring cheaper but perfectly cast character actors mm, like yeah. Leland Orser, who's in so many big movies and small roles, or Stearns is, like, writing a very interesting, complex role for his wife that plays to her strengths, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, um, as I said, at the top, like Gwyn said, with those big, wide eyes, she's so expressive. And because of that, you can tell a lot of the time with her characters what's happening internally with them. And, you know, she's got that you know lower, commanding voice and this athletic body which makes her seem very strong. And she's you know, obviously in a lot of action movies and I think because of those qualities she's you know often cast the sort of protagonist or hero you know, the woman who is the voice of reason who can hold her own when mm. put into a tight spot yeah. but I think False uses those elements of her in a different way because you think her character would be the victim you know, both falling prey to this cult and then being kidnapped by Ansel yet Winston plays her like she's the hero of her own story and the sort of disconnect between those two things fuels the movie kind of finding out what her deal is because yeah. like Winston's character, Claire, is kidnapped, and during her abduction scene, she acts how you think she would, like she lashes out at Ansel and the goons he hired to help, she makes an effort to escape, which fails, yet pretty soon after entering the hotel room and starting her one-on-one sessions with Ansel, she starts acting differently than you might expect. Like, um, during her first night, Ansel doesn't let her sleep, and he, he lays out methodically in the movie that, you know, when you're tired, we think less and feel more, today I wanted you to feel and though Claire looks exhausted Winston plays her is just like completely determined and focused and incapable of cracking and Ansel asks her early on like what's going on inside your head right now and she responds in this really precise way I'm thinking about how I want to rip your tongue out of your throat so you shut up that you're close enough that I could reach out and strangle you with my bare hands and that I'd like to I'm just waiting for a sign from God Uh, to which Ansel replies that is understandable just so you know I'm probably going to move back a little right now <laughs> <laughs> um, and her threat almost sounds like a badass line that would be in an action movie that Winstead would be in like Birds mm. of Prey but here it leaves you wondering like who is this person yeah. you know <laughs> how how can they be so determined and not scared mm. under the circumstances and there's a lot of gripping scenes in Faults where there isn't a lot of cuts and it's just two of these great actors cooking Winstead as Claire revealing more about her worldview and you know what the members of Faults believe in while Orser as Ansel tries to earn Claire's trust while at the same time trying to get her to question and poke holes in her beliefs and Winslet is so believable natural and sincere during those scenes that you do start to wonder if what faults is offering which is basically the ability to move and act outside of one's body and become invisible true (laughs) in the world of the movie (laughs) like if it's going to be that's going to be the twist and I don't want to spoil the movie it's better to go into it blind Um, I will say it sticks to the landing ending is great but I'll also say that there is a point in the movie where the power shifts between Ansel and Claire as Claire remains unwavering her beliefs and Ansel just starts cracking because of all these external pressures. And though the movie begins with Ansel as the person in charge and Claire is his captive, Orser is so good at playing pathetic and Winstead is so naturally a figure of strength on screen that you really buy the change in the dynamic. It feels natural and the shift starts subtly midway through the movie before building to Winstead's Claire bossing Ansel around in the last act in a way that's like very darkly funny Mm. Um, so yeah it's a great little thriller um, fascinating story elements and themes but it also happens to be like a great showcase for Winstead and a chance for her to play a much more ambiguous character people should check it out it's on Prime Video oh cool yeah Yeah. Um, do you want to talk Birds of Prey I will
0: yeah Harley Quinn played by Margot Robbie fresh off being dumped by the Joker is number one on the shit list of every crook in Gotham after agreeing to retrieve a diamond taken by pickpocket Cassandra Kane, played by Ella J. Basco, Harley eventually winds up teaming up with GCPD detective Renee Montoya, played by Rosie Perez, club singer Dina Lance, played by Journey Smollett-Bell, and traumatised assassin Helena Bertinelli, played by Winstead, who prefers to be known as Huntress. Together, they form the Birds of Prey and must protect Cassandra from gangster Roman Sionis, played by Ewan McGregor, better known as Black
1: Mask. She has the murder stuff down, but the rest... Do you know who I am?
0: Do you know who I am? Still a work in progress. Do you know who I am? The crossbow killer. They call me. The crossbow killer. They call me. What crossbow killer? They call me.
1: Huntress. She calls herself Huntress. Fucking fabulous if you ask me.
0: Uh, I think it's a comic book movie that has more personality than the MCU and a lot more colour and room to breathe um, than previous um, DCU films which were often too dark both tonally and visually it's not perfect there's a tighter film in there waiting to come out but I think it's shagginess is part of it's charm and that said, if ever a character deserved her own film here, it's Winstead's Huntress, who, despite all her training and deadly skills, constantly stumbles over her like supposedly badass intro and is clearly a lot goofier and awkward than she cares to admit.' <laughs> like, she, 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 there's this whole montage of her trying to introduce herself as they call me Huntress. That's what and she's constantly saying that to herself in the mirror. and instead, um that's like various characters turn into the camera or like, dying with a crossbow bolt in her throat after she's killed and being like the crossbow killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's really and then, funny.
0: yeah, as she's um as they all as finally the birds of prey all team up at the end, she's like They call me and uh, Renee Montoya goes, Helena Bertinelli. And she's like, oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Uh, And it's very charming and it doesn't have the self seriousness that comes with like kind of Smollett Bell or Perez's characters. And her voice is a lot easier in the years than Robbie's incessant New Jersey squawk. Sorry, but that voice is really fucking annoying. And I think of all the films in the post endgame world, Birds of Prey remains one of the most unique and least
1: ugly I agree and um, isn't it didn't they bring in some of the John Weeks guys to work in the action the action in that movie is really good
0: yeah I think they did yeah Um, it wasn't the best kind of action I'd seen Um, before a superhero movie before a superhero movie it was really fucking good yeah Yeah, it was very physical and especially Mary Elizabeth Winstead's there's a bit in the film where she's like because the finale takes place at like this um, theme park Yeah, yeah this cheap boardwalk theme park and she's rocketing down a slide punching the shit out of this stuntman and they collide with the camera and they keep the shot in the movie and it looks really really fucking cool it does Um, or she's like hopping between like different uh, these different kind of balance boards kicking people in the face a lot of fun a lot of fun yeah,
1: great it's some really good fight scenes. Yeah. Too, yeah. And good yeah. I, I think good villains. I th- I really like Chris Messina and Hugh McGregor
0: They are really fun. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. there's the bit, there's a great bit where like uh, in that montage where he, he he he's in a pink suit and he turns towards the camera he's like the crossbow killer <laughs> and it's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, anyway uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane 10 Cloverfield Lane Yes, yes. Have you I, seen 10 Cloverfield Lane I haven't you've no, seen, no You've never no. seen it No Oh, okay. no, I wow. should have watched it for this But
1: I I, I decided Kate needed more love Sure um, 10 Cloverfield Lane Centres around a young woman Named Michelle Played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead Who at the start of the movie You see packing a suitcase And leaving her fiance After an argument while driving away she gets involved in a car crash um, she wakens with an injured leg trapped in an underground bunker an older man named Howard played by John Goodman who's this menacing anti-social Navy man turned doomsday prepper tells her that he found her in the wreck and brought her to the bunker to save her life he also tells her that there's been an apocalyptic attack possibly of alien nature that has left the air and the surface unbreathable and that he, her and the other person in the bunker the young affable Emmett played by John Gallagher Jr. must stay underground for at least a year or two and while Michelle's very doubtful of Howard and his intentions for her Emmett says he is telling the truth so you have this mystery of you know did an attack really happen if so what was it and you also have this story about Emma and Michelle trying to coexist and survive with Howard who reveals himself to be you know aggressive and erratic and possessive I'm always watching always um God I'd go wherever I want uh I'm I mean uh I don't know I know what you're doing I see what you're doing um I know what you're up to look how, how I, I don't know what, what you're getting at I but, see when you're uh, sleeping you're I don't know what you're doing and I'm always watching I don't know. always, I don't know. always I don't know. watching don't know. I'm always watching Santa Claus <laughs> There's Santa Claus Yeah, Michelle, that's great. <laughs> Except it was Emmett's turn. Sorry, I just got a little excited. Yeah,
0: well, I'm keeping that point.
1: Totally, you earned it. Yeah, the, making this movie is very interesting. Basically, in 2008, the, the fan footage giant monster attacking New York movie Cloverfield was a big hit with critics and at the box office, and... Partly it was because of this um, very good and well done um, marketing campaign that was shrouded in mystery. I remember seeing this very enigmatic teaser for it without a title before Transformers when I was a young kid and being very entranced by it. And for years there was rumors of a more straightforward sequel, but its producer J.J. Abrams said, you know, Godzilla and Pacific Rim came out later and he thought that another kaiju movie might feel like Old Hat. JJ missed the fucking boat, Abrams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Abrams later is producing a movie called The Cellar, which was originally to be made by a pre-whiplash Damien Chazelle. Um, he actually retains a screenplay credit oh. on 10 Cloverfield Lane, but you know, Dan Trachtenberg ended up directing it. Um, but as The Cellar is being made, Abrams notices similarities between that and Cloverfield, and um, I think it's in how kind of the story played with genre conventions, how scary and paranoid, apocalyptic it was, how it suggested this sort of vague otherworldly threat. And he and the filmmakers decided to officially tie it to Cloverfield, basically saying it's not a direct sequel, but more of a sidequel. Cool. Mavens describes it as a blood relative or spiritual successor. Um, and I, I think generally that approach to you know making movies can be disastrous. Like mm. you, I think you should really know what you're shooting ahead yeah. of time. Yeah. Why, you know, still leaving the door open for potential other ideas or improvisation. And it should be said that Abrams tried a similar trick, taking an original script and turning it into a Cloverfield movie during filming two years later on the Cloverfield Paradox and it completely backfired. Um, That movie's just like a tonal mess. It's incomprehensible. It's on my fucking arm. Both on its own and how it ties into the other Cloverfield movies, like mind boggling. But I'll say, I, I think the gamble really paid off on 10 Cloverfield Lane and really made the movie stronger in certain ways because... I think if the movie's title didn't contain the word Cloverfield, the audience would be more like Winstead's Michelle in believing that, you know, Goodman's Howard is making up the attack. But because of what we know happened in Cloverfield, it casts a shadow over the movie and, you know, makes you take what Howard's saying a little bit more seriously. Mm. And obviously it's very scary being trapped in an underground bunker by a bad man convinced the world has ended. But it's scarier if the world really did end and your one saver who you're stuck with is this same bad man. Mm. And you are generally curious what is the truth in town Cloverfield Lane and... The way the movie dishes out information is very taut and twisty. Um, I also feel on 10 Cloverfield Lane that you can see segments of a more traditional contained Twilight Zone S story that the initial screenplay might have been, where, you know, the John Gallagher Jr.'s character may have been less sympathetic. I actually think his character Emmett and Winsett, Michelle's bond, adds this unexpected warmth and humanity to 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, From reading it online, it also seems like 10 Cloverfield Lane, compared to the Seller's screenplay, is more ambiguous about... Goodman's, you know, Howard's backstory, mm. which I think makes it more fascinating, but that the movie is more definitive about what ultimately happened on the surface, which I think is better in terms of putting a bow on the story. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I think the alterations to, you know, make this a Cloverfield movie actually made it a unique or more interesting, more unpredictable film. I that's I do think a lot of why Ten Cloverfield Lane works is is Winston, who's just so easy to root for, as Michelle. Um. One thing I love about the movie is that it really gets into the story quickly. The car crash happens during the opening credits. You're basically plunged almost immediately into Michelle's experience in the bunker in this very immersive way. And, you know, Michelle wakes up and she's trapped in this place she doesn't recognize and she's hurt and she's chained to a wall. And, you know, she tries to pull the chain and it doesn't bulge. And she does what anyone would do in that situation, starts to hyperventilate and panic and cry. But the camera does a close-up on Winston's face and there's no words, but you literally see the moment, you know, in the character's mind where she starts telling herself like pull yourself together come up with a plan and immediately she starts like chiseling a crutch howard left her into a weapon and starts a fire with the aim of like attracting howard so she can like surprise attack him with the crutch <laughs> um how he you know, quickly overpowers her and drugs her and when she comes to he tells her about the supposed attack and soon after like she meets Emmett and he seems to verify but immediately you know like she's a fighter mm. and you know this isn't a movie where there's a lot of backstory to its characters it's pretty sparse in that respect the closest thing we get to knowing about michelle's past is when she and Emma are talking through their bedroom walls about their regrets in life before the bunker and Winstead gives this really great heart-wrenching monologue about Michelle seeing a little girl being slapped by her dad in a hardware store in a way that reminded Michelle of how her own dad physically abused her and that while she wanted to say something, she didn't. Yeah, And she says, like, I did what I always do when things get hard. I just panicked and ran. And Winston like, is on the verge of tears, but you can tell is trying to remain composed in the way that we like our actors mm. <laughs> to do on this show. Um, her hand acting is really good in the scene. She's, like, holding onto this notebook, and as she tells the story, and the more intense it gets, you can see her just kind of grab the book. Um, it's beautifully written and acted, and it adds so much to the movie because, like, minor spoilers here, but it's revealed that Howard has this fixation on his daughter, Megan, who left him, presumably because of his overbearing nature mm. and he's implied to sort of look for surrogate daughters in other younger women he meets and Howard acts very threatening at times to Michelle and the more times she and Emmett spend with him as they discover clues you know, that what's happening on the surface may not be as bad as what Howard said the more they begin to think that the, the risk of entering to the surface is actually safer than being around Howard yeah. so there's this added emotional heft to sort of Michelle trying to get it out from under the thumb of Howard because of this little piece of backstory that we do get and um I have a theory that one of the best showcases for actors are movies about characters going undercover or movies about deception because the actor is having to play two different characters at once. Sort of, they're trying to be, they're having to be believable to the person in the scene they're trying to deceive while also conveying to audiences how they feel under that yeah, mask. Yeah. And there's large stretches of 10 12 land Lane that are like that. You know, one great scene comes after Winstead's Michelle realizes that Howard keeps the keys to leave the bunker on his belt. So, when the two are having dinner with Emmett, Michelle starts flirting with Emmett mm. so that Harold will get annoyed or jealous and pull her aside so that she can grab the keys, like, trying to get him close to her yeah. to take them. And I won't spoil what happens there, but like, the acting that scene is phenomenal. Harold, Bessie in the movie is after Michelle and Emmett have really committed to escaping and, you know, are just waiting for the perfect moment to do it. They play that game Taboo with Howard, which is like, as part of the game, Howard has to pick a card and describe what the word or thing is on that card for Emmett to guess without using the word or thing in the description. And as they play, Howard gets really intense and says, I'm always watching. I know what you're doing. I see everything. I see when you're sleeping. I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. I see everything you do. I'm always watching. And you see across Winston's face that Michelle thinks for a second that they've been like caught and exposed before it dawns on her that Howard's just playing the game. (laughs) So just as Emmett is about to break and be like, oh, oh, and come clean to Howard, Michelle says, Santa Claus, (laughs) (laughs) before smiling and saying, you're Santa Claus. And Howard suddenly turns calm and cheerful and goes, yeah, Michelle. Except it was Emmett's turn. (laughs) Um, Not yours. I'm claiming those five points. (laughs) Um, It's so Ted, so funny. And um, I haven't seen the original Cloverfield in a while, but I think 10 Cloverfield Lane is the best of the franchise. And I think Winston's emotional, physical, layered performance, along with, like, michelle's sort of fighting spirit and resourcefulness makes the character one of the best heroines of a mainstream movie in recent years i think it is sort of what you were looking for maybe you're right in um, a winstead portrayal but it is kind of connected to this sort of Mm. quite convoluted franchise which maybe takes a little bit of the shine away yeah yeah it's not just winstead's movie it's part of the the ongoing the the clover cinematic the cloverfield cinematic universe
0: the the cf FU or whatever. CFC. FU indeed. <laughs> FU indeed, yeah. FU um, indeed, JJ Abrams. Do you want to talk about Kate? I will, yeah. <clears throat> Kate, played by Winstead, is an assassin trained since childhood by Varick, played by Woody Harrelson. After a routine assignment, Kate is fatally poisoned by a one-night stand, played by The Haunting of Hill House's Michael Hussman, at the behest of Yakuza boss Kijima, played by uh, I Know That Face... Uh, stalwart Jun Kunimura.
1: Hey, uh, he's as, back.
0: He's back. Uh, <laughs> as Kate tears apart Osaka in search of the poisoners, she takes Kijima's niece Annie, played by Miku Martino, hostage and finds that her apocalyptic rage may have been misdirected.
1: You sure, you don't want to use the variable scope for this?
0: No, we've got a lock on Doctor dexter- and trajectory.
1: Can you hear that saying? Listen to your elders. Big phrase, especially here in Japan.
0: Oh, so you're an elder now.
1: Elder doesn't necessarily mean old, it just means older, is in smarter, wiser. But hey, I'm serious. We blow this chance at seven, seven years... Seven years of
0: hard work down the drain. Ah, so you do listen to me.
1: Beep. I haven't missed once in 12 years. I'm not gonna miss.
0: So a story trope I'm a sucker for is human weapon saves child. So like Man on Fire... Um, that one uh, with Chris Hemsworth in it, where he's in um, extraction. extraction,
1: extraction. I was yeah, gonna say yeah. evacuation, yeah. Yeah.
0: extraction. Um, yeah. So I'm a big, big sucker for that kind of story trope, um, where some mercenary or assassin is forced to deal with like a teenager. Just watched a great Korean one called The Killer last night. Very good. Um, did you watch Gangster Cop in the Devil? Oh I, yeah, it's so loved. good. It's it? so yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason. This maybe didn't do so well critically, at least. Who knows what the Netflix numbers were? Uh, is that we're well entrenched in kind of John Wick fatigue at this stage? This came out. This movie came out in like twenty, I want to say twenty twenty one or something. Um, but I think at that stage, it's like. Um, I think if producers and executives want eyeballs on screens, then they're going to have to start giving audiences more than just neon light, slick choreography and a grizzled protagonist. I think that suits a lot of people. It certainly suits me. But I think if they want sort of I I think if they want the critics to start paying attention and people who whose only action movie a year is, say, like the next John, the latest John Wick, then they need to start. I don't know, offering a bit more, and I think it's reasonable to say that just because some of these films, like Atomic Blonde or Kate or Gunpowder Milkshake, have women at the centre of them, it doesn't necessarily always make them automatically better or more, more interesting. Um, it's always great to, to see the actor doing the fights and the stunts, but there has to be something more unique and interesting in there than a gender switch and a couple of hallway fights. Um, I think it's something Korean action cinema, as an example, has always understood. Um, my weekend, my weekend being an example, I watched um, The Outlaws, The Roundup gangsters, cop and the devil and the killer. All stellar. Unbelievable. None of them really centre women, unfortunately, but yeah, all The villainess. villainess, exactly. Yeah, that, now there's an interesting film. A very shaggy, interesting film, but a, an interesting film, nonetheless. Um, nevertheless, I think Kate has that extra special something. And I think from the get-go, we're made aware that Kate was conditioned and trained for this role of emotionless killer, of being an emotionless killer. She never got to be a teenager or a young woman. She's like her parents are killed and she's kidnapped when she's like 10 or 11 or 12 or something she never got to be that teenager or young woman that all uh, girls should get to be just to kill her I think even her attempt at cutting loose is mechanical like it's literally like an engine blowing off steam where she goes out hits the club and then brings um, what's his face Michael Hoosman back Uh, has sex with him gets poisoned and then goes on the war path again Um. I think it's clear that underneath all the toned muscles, heightened reflexes and hidden feelings that Kate considers her life a wasted one, and it's in Annie that she sees a chance to do some good in the world, even if it won't necessarily save her. And so while it does have all the insane gunplay, stunts, fights, and John Cunnemora beheading a man with a samurai sword, it also has all the emotional beats that carry the film all the way to the, to a bittersweet end. And nearly, nearly all of these beats are powered by Winstead, whose determination in the face of rapid bodily decay—she looks pretty rough by the end of this. Uh, like there's no like prosthetics, but she's like sunken and, and hollow-eyed and like beaten and bloody and bruised, which uh, I presume is exacerbated by all the radiation poisoning. And that's kind of enough to power the film on its own. But when you have that relationship with Annie and her own like shattered life in her own re- in her rearview mirror, then I think there's enough here to distinguish Kate from the other John Wick clones that have come before it and will keep coming.
1: Well, I'm gonna watch it. It's good this
0: weekend. I'm gonna yeah, do. It. Yeah, um, maybe it's a little long. It's an hour forty-five. Could do so. Could could lose fifteen minutes there. But you know what?
1: Listen, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it as much wins as I can get. Honestly. And speaking of which, you mentioned at the beginning that she's gonna be in a Star Wars Mandalorian spin-off called Ahsoka, starring um, Rosario Dawson. Um, she is going to reteam on screen with her husband for a third time after you know, the great season on Fargo together and Birds of Prey on A Gentleman in Moscow, a TV adaptation of the book of the same name by Amor Tells, which I've heard is a great read. Um, I think most excitingly, though, she's going to be in a movie called Rich Flu, which is the English language debut of the director who made that um, Spanish sci-fi horror, The Platform. Oh, yeah. That caused a bit of a stir when it dropped on Netflix a few years ago. Actually, I haven't seen that movie. I would Me like to check it, it out. Yeah. But um, the pl- premise for Rich Flu sounds very interesting. It explores how far people would go to save themselves when the wealth that made the world go round then becomes its most dangerous commodity after a strange disease threatens to kill anyone with any sort of fortune. Damn. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited for that. Yeah, sounds good. Um, rate and view and subscribe every you get your podcast from. If you have a friend who's really into the movies, why not recommend them our show? Email i pod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to us. Follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you love I Know The Face, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Stop Plus where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Ed Stuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we
0: play it, as well as at the website www.fortnightfrights.wordpress.com. Talk about uh, the most influential horror films beginning in 1920, we're up to 1937, with Song at Midnight from China.
1: Excellent. Uh, follow me on Letterboxd, my other Ports or Portfolio. You can also check me out at joe.e. I recently ranked all the Scream movies, so you can check that mm. out. Good for you, Steve. Um, see you later, Cinephalus. Bye bye.